Chapter Four of the Night Side of New York by members of the New York Press. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cheap Theater, four forty four. There are several theaters in this big city, popular and well attended by a certain class, which are beyond the pale of criticism. Their stars rise, shine, and wane, innocent of the puffs of the daily press. The approaching steps of their triumphal march are not heralded by big letters in all hues, illuminating vacant walls, straggling fences, and rural rocks. The chief scenes of their great acts are never aired on gaudy canvas or in flaming woodcuts, making great picture galleries of our highways and byways. Do you remember when Professor Pepper's ghost had the run of our Broadway theatres, how all the rocks and fences from the city hall to harlem were haunted with skeletons just now we are regaled with the scarlet woman who comes next to have their carte de visite six feet by four hung all day and night in the street galleries to be decapitated by the street boys extract of boo-hoo on the coat-tails or to go home to the shanty of a rag-picker in the bottom of her old canvas sack Perhaps it's a pleasure to be deprived of all this. Many thin-skinned people think so. But we guess that the artists of the cheap theatres rather envy their brother lions of the higher class, when in all their walks abroad they see their elephantine cards staring at them from every corner. Deprived of all this, however, they make a little show under the shadow of the box-office, the lithographer and the photographer multiply them in all costumes and postures, and they hang in the entrance halls of their several theatres, to the edification of a gaping crowd of the patrons of their genius, or admirers of their charms. Perhaps 444 Broadway is the most notable of these cheap theatres. It certainly is the best patronized. The big lantern before its entrance flames as lustily as in its palmy days, when it shed its beam on the tide of pleasure-seekers flocking to that shrine of cork and wool, the first home of the renowned Woods Minstrels. After a glance at the pictures of its troupe, the most attractive of which are those of the ballet, we pitch down its steep entranceway, almost stumbling over the doorkeeper from its precipitancy. The hall that we now enter is well filled. It is very capacious and well ventilated, except the low gallery which half encircles the crescent-shaped building. This is but a nest of sweating boxes, and their occupants have rather a hot stamping ground. Half of the ground floor is divided by a wire wicket, the other side of which is known to the attentive reader of the program as the orchestra chair settlement a sort of aristocratic part of the house. Boxes, gaudy with loud upholstery, flank the stage, and are generally empty, except of a Saturday matinee. They style them matinees, even here, when some woman of the semi-demimonde is bold enough to haunt them. The stage is capacious, and its drop up to style. The orchestra was well filled with a band of the most tenacious Dutchmen that ever scraped a fiddle blank-eyed, whisker-faced, careworn, spectacled musicians, not a sensual mouth among them, yet with such a shaking of plump female limbs over their very eyelids. They sawed, they blew, they pounded drums, uncomplaining and never weary, 
yet never smiling, and the whole house in convulsions. The audience was a conglomeration of all classes, for the whispers that have gone forth of the sly double jokes related at Butler's establishment have reached ears far and wide. The galleries, the admission to which is fifteen cents, were groaning with young bootblacks, unfledged rowdies, shiftless loafers, and representatives of the mercantile community, who deal limitedly in pippins and ice-cream. The parquet, the twenty-five-cent seat locality, enjoyed the society of young men about town, who pick up a precarious living, and have a great weakness for corner groceries. Some old men, with the odor of car-stables, sailors, soldiers, and gentlemen employed in repairing our highways, were also conspicuous spectators. The select orchestral chairs, many of them a long way from the orchestra, were devoted to the comfort of numerous dry-goods drummers and their country customers, members of the bar, proprietors of bars, youths who lunch at berries and drink black coffee at midnight at Delmonico's, individuals who patronize faro-banks, gents who finger large quantities of money in other banks, clerks and blacklegs, Fulton market butchers and navy officers. The playbill, which is as long as your arm, for they don't spare actor, time, nor musician in this hospitable entertainment, announces fourteen different entertainments, many of which are encored and then encored again, spinning it to past twenty in number, and almost five hours in time. Its variety is as notable as its length. Songs, dances, and farces crowd one another to the end. Another feature, and which adds much to the success of the proprietor, is the restless activity of the performers. Nothing lags. The singer rushes through his song. The darky jumps at his jokes, and the legs of the ballet girls are always twinkling. And it may be said, with truth, that the heels of the scene-shifter never are cool, and the echoes of the prompter's bell never dies out. Liberty to smoke in any part of the house is another peculiarity of the cheap theatre. Cigar vendors patrol the building, and Have a cigar, sir? rings from parquet to gallery. The sententious leader of the band smokes, the violins and the bass viol smokes. So would the horn and the flute if they could puff the weed through the keys of their instruments. The vile pipe of the mender of highways, the cigarette of the youth, the black cabbage roll of the rough, and the light Havana of the bank clerk, all mingle the perfumes of their smoke wreaths in one rank misty cloud that hangs aloft as an offering to the shrine of their favorite gods. We must confess there was something oriental in lolling in one's seat, puffing at ease, gazing through the smoke at the graceful limbs of large-eyed dancing girls. Prompt on time shot the curtain to the dust and cobwebs over the stage. Out from the side scenes pops a darky clog-dancer, as the music of his brass heels clattering on the boards rings through the hall. The eyes of the gallery are on him. There is a crowding to the front places, standing on seats, leaning on shoulders, gazing on their very knees. This portion of the audience show their unmistakable appreciation of the jig-dancer. Their very eyes glisten at the sight of his silver belt, 
and there are no bounds to their admiration when the pipe-stem legs in black velvet contort themselves into some fantastic position and amble around the stage in faultless time this fellow had probably received his early dancing education in the bunk-room of a fire company to dance a jig or a step around was a cardinal point in a faultlessly nursed fire-boy after this jig came the ballet the attractive feature of the evening's entertainment the heavy trump-card of the cheap theatre the scenic artist gave us a hot blistering scene somewhere in the torrid zone where burning bushes volcanic eruptions and noonday heat are the orthodox condition of things perhaps this was done more out of sympathy for the scantily robed females who now crowded the stage in all the splendor of meretricious spangles and fleecy gauze when the dancing of these nymphs commenced it was too apparent why the front seats nearest the footlights had been so eagerly gobbled up by a party of vicious-looking youths who had gone very early and were considerably wrought up with anticipating anxiety we never saw such a promiscuous startling and very loose flinging about of flesh-coloured tights it would be a bold assertion to say that these females their pictures are hung at the door were all pretty or well formed but certainly distance lending enchantment to the view the blending of high colours and powder and rouge false hair in its most fascinating wreathings all combined to make a very pretty picture then contrast their remarkably pure white and new dresses their dazzling arms and snowy busts in the flood of light with the rough crowd and foul tobacco reeking hall so dimly lighted and you'll not wonder that an enthralling enchantment should blind the many who drink their first draught at these poisonous fountains the dancing was not of the first order the dancers were with one or two exceptions clumsy and heavy the limbs of some were faulty and the more lank and shaky they all knew the parts down on the bill of engagement for them they emulated each other literally to toe the mark the highest many of these poor girls have had the run of the theatres clattered their castanets to very moral and respectable ears and one shudders at the course of training that first led them to the footlights from which they have danced down down to this almost the lowest haunt of the pleasure-seeker the comic songs in character which followed and which were sandwiched in between each scene were not very meritorious you'd hear better at any of the free and easies just round the block the inevitable irish paddy whacking his shillelagh forgetting his brogue or mixing the yankee twang with the uncouth hog latin of a yorkshireman these are miserable representatives to one who may have seen a barney williams or a john brome but there was one exception billy holmes what is four forty four without billy billy with his high white hat his heavy moustache his velvet coat his check pants if you'd see a jolly sport in character look at billy so tall so comic so inventive for it's known to many that billy holmes spends his days in composing something new oh how hard billy hits off the times who dares look at a waterfall after hearing billy without a smile 
Billy is very broad, too broad, vulgar. Billy's vulgarity has a zest for some of the thin-blooded old rascals who go there to ogle these poor dancing girls. These are ard, very ard of earin, them old fellows. They are forever poking the ribs of their younger acquaintances for the last thing Billy got off. To say that the negro minstrelsy of 444 is equaled nowhere in the city is not saying much in a city where cork and wool is done to death. 444 is no blessing to the metropolis. To say that it is low, that its actors are vulgar, that it is corruption itself, is truth. It's enough of it to add that even a woman of the town would not enter its portals at night as a spectator of its obscene revels. End of chapter 4